You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy While Muslim. This is Uzma Jaffrey, and um, you'll notice that uh, Zeba Hassan is missing today. She had a medical procedure that could not be postponed anymore, so let's please make dua that her results will come up positive and she gets a clean bill of health. Amin. Today, providing our regularly scheduled updates is Ikhlas Salim, who has graciously uh, agreed to join us today. Assalamualaikum, Ikhlas. Tell us about your week. Waalaikum salam. Thanks for having me on here. I'm happy to be here today. Um, my week has, alhamdulillah, been well so far. I mean, it's, you know, it's been challenging having the baby home while working, but you know, alhamdulillah, it's nice to be able to spend more time with him. So try to look at the bright side. Alhamdulillah. I think about um, all the moms like you who, and remind me how old your newborn is, your infant. He's almost 11 months. Mashallah. Oh, so he's almost a toddler. Yeah. Wow. Um, still a nugget. But I think of these little people with these moms who are, um, you know, you're stuck at home and you've been stuck at home for a long time with them. But I remember my time, which wasn't that long ago, uh, but it was move, 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 go, go, go all the time. So I kind of am glad, and I know you might want to throw a shoe at me, but I'm kind of glad that y'all have this opportunity to have these last, you know, two, three months of just nothing. And I know it's under duress, but I want to encourage you to think of it as this opportunity to have this one-on-one connection time that's going to be so hard to get once everything opens up and everything kind of goes back to normal and it's just magical. I'm not going to say what everybody else says about it. Uh, I am going to say it's a magical time. So I'm really glad that you have this opportunity that some of us didn't get. So if that's a silver lining for you. No, it's, it's definitely a silver lining. I always laugh because I'm like, it's hard for us, but it's literally like the best time of his life. (laughs) He's like, this is so great. Nothing needs to change. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And what's new with you this week? So I had surprise family kind of show up, you know, the garage door opens and woohoo, we took a flight across the country to visit you. And, you know, my daughter is on on some uh, immunosuppression. So it was kind of like, when you took a flight with people on it to come over here. But, you know, they they took whatever precautions they could. It was, you know, it was nice. My kids, like you said, it's the best time of their lives. And they are really grateful to have somebody visiting that they love and they've missed for a very long time. So, you know, I share that with Zeba where family just kind of showed up this week. And, you know, it's like, hey, here we are to love and support you. So, alhamdulillah for for all things. Um, I actually did end up medicating at a protest on Saturday night. And it was really cool quiet because it was in the suburbs, right? Mm. It got me a little bit concerned because I thought, why is it so quiet? Why aren't there as many people here? I hope the movement is still going strong. But luckily, action was happening downtown. So that was different. Um, But in suburbia, and I think that's just kind of reflective of where you are geographically in a city. And I'm at this point not able to go downtown. Um, to the big actions, but I'm praying and hoping that the movement continues and, you know, doesn't quiet down. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so I know y'all do soapbox. 
segments. What's the soapbox today? So um, this week in the news, we have mayors still saying the word colored. We have police union presidents saying that they deserve respect, but not doing anything to actually deserve it. We have over 600 videos of police brutality against protesters, peaceful protesters, compiled in this month alone. We have two black men that were murdered again by police this week, not even recording how many have been lynched, but we know that there's been at least two. Um, We have Karens still coming out of the woodwork. So if you haven't seen the viral video, I don't know if we should um, give it more traffic, but um, we have Lisa Alexander, CEO of LaFace. If that's the name of your company, you probably shouldn't be on video um, unless it's in a positive light. But Lisa decided um, to show white privilege and condescended condescension at its best. Now, she didn't show it to a black man, but she showed it to a Filipino man with his his face covered. And um, if you look up the video, you'll understand what I'm saying. But basically, this video, just in my mind, all these little lights and signals were going on. Um, You know, I'm in medicine. So for us, somebody is a threat if they are a danger to themselves or to others. If they're not, then I can leave them alone. This is not an emergency in any way, shape, or form. So for those people who are not Black or people of color, I would like to give you a piece of advice. And that is, if something doesn't appear dangerous to themselves or to others, maybe you don't have to say anything. You know, And I know that we've been taught since 9-11 to see something, say something, but that's not always a situation. You don't have to call the police because, look, we have 600 pieces of evidence to say that it's not safe when you call the police. They don't act in a safe behavior. Um, so mind your own business. Keep walking, Lisa. If some of us who don't have any kind of authority or experience could just shut our mouths, that's the way that we can um, – contribute to the movement, I believe. If we're not able to actually engage directly, maybe even our silence is a contribution. And I think that that's important. There's a whole subset of us that have nothing more to offer than that, but I would uh, wager to say that that is actually very significant. So on that note, I am joined today, as you can see, by one of the co-hosts of Identity Politics Podcast, Ikhlas Salim, and she was kind enough to come on today, pick up for Zeba. I so appreciate that. Um, And like us, she and her co-hosts record in different time zones, um, and uh, they are able to connect on the podcast and support their friendship in real life, just like Zeba and I. So we thought, hey, this is like a great uh, uh, team to bring on here. And Ikhlas, who is a mother herself, uh, is able to represent for us. So she is a writer, storyteller, digital media strategist, and director of digital content for Brightbeam, which is a communications nonprofit that focuses on improving public education. Yay, public education. Her work has been featured in BuzzFeed and The Atlantic, and she was named one of 18 Muslim women to watch in 2018 by Muslim Girl. Like she shared with us earlier, she's a new mom and a guest today continuing our series on Muslim American identity. Welcome, Ikhlas, to Momming One Muslim. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. We are too. We're so excited because when we ran across Identity Politics podcast and we were putting together this month, this series, we thought, who better than to get on Identity Politics? They talk about this all the time. So um, tell us a little bit about your mom's story and then about the podcast in whatever order you want, because I know one came after the other. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I'll just start with the show maybe. Okay. So Identity Politics was created back in 2016. Um, I think the first episode was January, sometime in January 2016. And at the time, I believe I was still unemployed. <laughs> I just like um, got laid off a job. I was unemployed and I wanted to be able to build a new skill set like around digital skills. But more importantly, I wanted to engage in work of telling the stories of my family, my friends, highlighting perspectives of specifically Black Muslims in this country that often went untold. And so when you look at the coverage of Black Muslims, typically it's around like conversion, um, it's around like my parents' generation, they'll feature stories, but not really like contemporary stories of like young um, Black Muslims in America. So I wanted to have the, a space to create that. And so I thought a good way to do that originally was through blogging, <laughs> but it was very hard to get people to write. And so um, I realized that I needed to switch to audio <laughs> format. And so I launched the podcast. And for a while, I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, but my now husband sent me a calendar invite one day and was like, this is the date that you're just going to launch the show and you're just going to do it. And it's not going to be perfect and that's okay, but you just need to start somewhere and get it out there. I love, what I love about that is you saw an absence of something and you decided, okay, it doesn't exist. So I'm going to create it. Yeah. And the show has become like popular, but at the end of the day for Mecca and I is like, we want to create a space where people can free to have this conversation that you may not be able to get at your masjid, you may not be able to get from your halakha, like, um, and then creating a welcoming space for Muslims who might feel like on the margins too, even outside of like racial identity. Um, because we have a lot of people that listen to our show that aren't Black, right? That they don't identify as Black. Um, so also just maintaining that space more than like, Oh, we need to get X amount of listeners. Like, oh, we're like, you know, need to be featured here and there. So that's really like always been our intention. Well, I mean, just so you know, before we started, we were like, well, who's been around the longest and who should we kind of base it on? And it was episodes that you guys have done that we look to for inspiration and how should this be done and how do we want it to go? So you've been a team that's super, that has inspired us to tell our stories too. So mission accomplished. Good job, mashallah. Mashallah, that's beautiful. I'm happy that we can be <laughs> beneficial. <laughs> so what about your mom's story? Um, so I would say one of the biggest takeaways after having my son is I thought <laughs> pregnancy was like challenge. And, you know, alhamdulillah, I had a pretty easy pregnancy, like no complications, anything like that. Um, and like the birthing, it was relatively... I, you know, I don't want to use the word easy, but it wasn't maybe as difficult as some other birthing. I had him at home. Um, it was like four hours. And, you know, I didn't realize the after part would be so hard. <laughs> that fourth trimester, yeah, right? <laughs> it's like real. And I know people, I know women had like talked about it. I was in groups where women talked about the fourth trimester. Like, and I heard it, but like when you're living it, it's just like, really, really hard. Um, and I'm happy to like, mm -hmm. like finally be like out of that. And now I can see, like, I'm like, oh, I love my baby. Not that I didn't love him before, 
<laughs> but now I'm like, we can have fun together. And like, you're more relaxed and like, I know what you need. Um, and I've like jotted down like things that I would do differently. I was actually just talking to my husband a few days ago where I was like, okay, for the next one, like these are the things I wanna do differently. I was like, we should definitely like outsource everything in the house that's possible. <laughs> so like friends, family, like if it comes to paying someone, like I was like, we just need to like relax. So yeah, I've definitely learned some things that I'll take. So um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your family background, your experiences growing up Muslim and, you know, anything that kind of sticks out in your mind about what you saw in a masjid or what you didn't see in a masjid? Yeah, I would say I come from like a pretty unique position. Um, I talk a lot about this in I guess the beginning episodes of identity politics, actually, the first interview I did was with my mom and she just talked about her experience becoming Muslim and the environment that existed there. And then we kind of had a generational conversation about, you know, for her, she was emerging into a new space where, you know, she was making the decision to become Muslim in a family that was like not Muslim in an environment, right, that was not Muslim. And so just having to take this stance at the risk of, you know, being isolated from her family and things like that. And alhamdulillah, you know, my grandmother, may Allah have um, mercy on her. Initially, she was like, what? No, like, what are you talking about? But, um, you know, alhamdulillah, she was able to embrace my mom and Islam. She didn't become Muslim herself, but she created a space where my mom could, you know, be a Muslim and still be welcomed in her family. And then in comparison to me, I, you know, was alhamdulillah born Muslim to two Muslim parents. And I grew up in Atlanta in a largely, I say largely, but pretty much just like Black American Muslim um, community. And so my experience, you know, from the time I was young until I went off to college, all I really knew um, were Muslims who looked like me. <laughs> um, I went to Islamic school, like pre-K through 12, that you know was run by Black Muslims, founded by Black Muslims, the masjid I went to, people who looked like me. And so I didn't really know anything different until I left home and went to college. Of course, I knew that there were other Muslims um, in Atlanta, Georgia, like around the world, but I never had like interactions um, with other Muslims who weren't Black until college. So I had a very like limited sense of what relationships were like between um, Black and non-Black Muslims. I love hearing that because I kind of had the opposite experience where I grew up, well, same and opposite in, in a way, I guess, uh, where I grew up in a primarily uh, non-Black Muslim masjid. And even that, like, we didn't participate really in the masjid at all, um, my family. I, I'm personally a Sunday school dropout mm -hmm. uh, because for me, it was more important to play volleyball. And, and our Sunday school was on Saturday. Actually, it was a Saturday <laughs> school. So our volleyball tournaments were on Saturday. Mm -hmm. So I, I dropped out and didn't understand anything that was going on. Because when you take South Asians whose second language is English and their culture is a completely different culture, and then they're brought into the classroom to teach these very American children these very esoteric texts, um, 
the attention span of the kids is is very low mm -hmm. after a certain point. And I was I officially dropped out, I think, in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was done with Saturday school <laughs> at that point. Uh, and then when I got to college is when for the first time I got to experience, um, you know, like actual African-American Muslims. And I remember being 20 years old and we uh, created like uh, a lock-in at the masjid for sisters only. And for the first time, it was like a really big contingency of African-American Muslims there. And for the first time, one of the moms was talking to the other moms because it was a Q&A. And she opened up about how, you know, I think the question came up like, why, how do we get people to participate more in the masjid, the masjid activities and get women more involved? And this woman stood up and she was like, well, if you guys included us more or, you know, on a regular basis, didn't relegate us to like the back rows because you saved the front rows for other people. And to be honest, in the masjid that I grew up, the front rows were saved for the people who had to sit down, who I don't think any of them were black. They were all older South Asian ladies whose knees somehow go out by the time they're 45. I'm not sure how that happens, but they're all done after menopause. We can't <laughs> kneel anymore. We can't make such that I'm prostrate. We have to sit on a chair. So that was for them. And she was like, you don't include us. Like you think, you know, like we're lesser than and we don't have anything to contribute because we're not making big donations to the masjid like your South Asian doctors are. And, you know, the message that I was getting from her and the sense that I was getting from her is that she always felt second citizened in the masjid space. And that's why she didn't feel safe coming. Ultimately, the masjid was not a safe space for Black Muslims. And I was 20 years old before I realized that. And I didn't know how to fix it. Um, and I think it was like, you know, obviously the South Asian auntie who heard it took took it very defensively and there was a whole bunch of ooh, ah, and umming about it. And I don't know, once you reached college, if you saw any of these interactions and if you saw them maybe go a different way or got a little bit more insight from um, what you heard or what you saw. Yeah, I mean, I think college is also a unique space, right? Like, in college, there's like a lot that everyone hasn't seen before or people that you haven't interacted with before. And, you know, as you enter college, you're carrying whatever assumptions, whatever baggage, right, that you've learned from your parents, that you've learned from your environment. And, you know, I think one of the most significant things that you can bring to college with you is like an open mind, right? a willingness to let go of some of those assumptions you've picked up. And so I would say my experience in college, when I first started, I, I wasn't really interested in joining the Muslim students group because I was like, oh, okay, like here there's predominantly Arabs, South Asians. Like I've learned that these people are like racist. Um, so like, I'm not really interested. I'm gonna go ahead and join the black students group um, because that's a space that I feel more comfortable in. Um, but as I was in the black student union there, you know, being Muslim was a large part of my identity because I went to K through 12 Islamic school, right? And I just grew up around Muslims. And so there was a part of me that wanted to like, make the attempt to see like, can I feel comfortable in this space? Will I feel welcomed in this space? And it's funny because it happened when I was taking Arabic and there were other Muslims in the Arabic class. And I would like sat on one side of the room and two of the girls sat on like 
the whole other side of the room. And then like every day I would just like sit on my side of the room and those two would sit over there and they would like laugh. And then one day they're like, yo, like, why are you sitting over there? Like, <laughs> why don't you come sit with us? Like, you know, I'll come like, them. like what's up? <laughs> and then I remember just being like, oh, like, honestly, like I, my expectation was like, you wouldn't even speak to me or acknowledge, you know, that I was Muslim and they're both Pakistani. And so that was like just very surprising to me because everything I had been taught told me like I would not be welcomed um, by them. Um, so like things like that, so I would say like you can have friendships that like do explore um, identity in a way that like needs to happen. But I think systematically, like just even thinking about university wise, like during my time there, we had like rotations of chaplains and like they weren't black, not saying that they like needed to be, but in the history that I knew of, there weren't ever any black women chaplains. I mean, I went to Wellesley, so at all women's college, that's what I'm saying, any black women chaplains. So I think systematically what I had been taught, you know, there was truth to that, that like deep racism exists within these communities, but in the personal relationships that I developed, I was able to have a conversation about the underlying like anti-blackness, you know, that was there. What I I really appreciate here is that you had this you had this feeling, this sense going in that non-black Muslims were racist toward black Muslims. And I know that I had this sense going into college that no we're not, mm -hmm. you know, but then we looked around and we saw that there was there was not adequate diversity. There was not adequate representation. And the second point that I find interesting that you said is that, you know, when it comes to all the things that we can, I don't want to say divide along, but identify with, whether it's our race or ethnicity or, you know, our national heritage or religion, our gender, you felt more comfortable identifying as a Black woman than as a Black Muslim woman? I would say it wasn't that I didn't feel comfortable identifying as a Black Muslim woman, because I did in the Black student union I was in. It was just like, I didn't want to be part of your Muslim organization initially, because I it didn't feel like a space where I would feel welcomed. But as you said, it's through relationships and these personal relationships that you found that you could see a way, could you see a way that institutionally things could be changed other than running for um, leadership at your school? Did you see a way to change what the MSA looked like? Um, it's hard because institutionally, I don't think I expect a university to solve problems that exists like outside of the university. I think what was welcoming like small things, if I guess if you're thinking about MSA level, when I joined the Black Students Union, it was a more of like seeking first year students out. And so it felt very welcoming because there were people who are in the Black Student Union who like lived in my dorm and like the older students would come to me and say, you know, like, how, how are you doing? How's the first week going? Like, what do you need support with? Like, has anyone shown you this? Um, you know, it wasn't even like, hey, let's talk about like black things on campus. It was just like, hey, how are you? Like, how are you doing as a first year? I don't remember ever orienting black Muslim incoming 
black Muslim students. And I, and I don't know why that is, but you're making me think that maybe it was because there is this inherent suspicion of non-black Muslims having an undercurrent of racism. And maybe sadly that still exists. It's tough. Cause I'm like, it's a suspicion that's like often true. <laughs> like, you know? Um, oh yeah. No, yeah. I agree so with you. Like, I totally yeah. agree with you. And I'm sure like to, I mean, I feel like college was also a long time ago. So I like also want to make sure that I'm not like mischaracterizing, you know, the MSA and like things, right? Because in hindsight, things are, you start to blur things and create a narrative that like maybe wasn't there fully. Um, When we're talking about um, that racism towards Black people, I think a lot of it is because you know, in my experience, not having grown up with a lot of African-American Muslims in my spiritual spaces, not knowing um, the history mattered. And it wasn't until I was a mom of three children, three kids. So I didn't start having kids until I was 29. So by my third kid is when I finally learned um, African-American history because of course, you know, I grew up in Texas, so you don't learn anything outside of slavery and the Civil War. Like that's it, and it's like very short blurbs. There's a lot of erasure that happens in our textbooks, black erasure. I'm talking about, and I feel like that uh, erasure of black history and black people um, continues in our spiritual spaces. And if our immigrant communities were only privy to, you know, knowing something simple like 20% of Africans who were brought here during the slave trade were Muslim, you know, if they knew that, then they would realize how inappropriate it is to ask a black Muslim who identifies as a black Muslim, oh, when did you convert? You know, because there's this whole belief. And I think this is where some of that racism comes from, or is what is considered to be racism, because you know, people will ask, like, when did you convert? Oh, well, I've been Muslim my whole entire life. And so has my family. What are you talking about? Like, there were Muslims here in the 20s, 1920s and 30s, and they were black. So what also sparked um, my interest in pursuing talking to you, Ikhlas, was going on an interfaith online forum. It was a Facebook group. And this woman was uh, quoting Pew Research Center statistics on the ethnic makeup and the racial makeup of Muslims in America. And, you know, Black Muslims were not even mentioned. Um, and so I was like, wait a minute, you know, like a good 30% of U.S. Muslims are Black. And she was arguing about it and it just got really ugly. And at some point I was like, oh, well, you know, you're the, you sound like a product of white colonialism because she's South Asian. And I was like, you sound like what products of white colonialism say where they just erase black people from our history, from our statistics, and we deserve to be counted. And I said, we, and, you know, I'm sure that was probably inappropriate and misleading because she ended up going to my Facebook profile and she's like, you're not even black. Your name is Shia and you're a non-black Shia person. You don't even even belong here on an interfaith group, by the way, it got really, really ugly. And it just struck me again, how immigrant Muslims um, or non-Black Muslims don't know the history of Black America and Islam in America. The oldest Muslim community in America is Black, (laughs) you know? If anybody has anything to teach us, it's Black Muslims. 
but we don't see them in our spiritual places. We don't see them in spiritual leadership. I feel like there's a movement to start. And what I'm happy to see is that some of them are female. So that black Muslim female voice like is going to mother my children. And I feel really pleased about it, but I kind of feel like I missed out on that entire experience of the mothers that came before them um, that could have taught us. And they've always been there. They've always been available. Um, But I think a lot of that racism stems from the fact that Black history has been erased from our education. Obviously, people overseas didn't get it at all. America was bad because they participated in the slave trade in the first place. That's all we need to know. Um, But now they've criminalized these people, institutionalized all these people, and there's no going back except for the ones that happen to convert. And it's like, no, you don't realize there's generations of Black Muslims that have been here before us and that have um, taught us how to perform civil disobedience, how to protest, how to make change, all the community and social programs that non-Black Muslims benefit from were established by Black protest movement. And, you know, a lot of them were Muslims at the time, you know, who, again, I think felt safer identifying as Black than, or, you know, uh, working in the Black communities than in the Black Muslim communities because those safe spaces weren't being made for them. So, um, you know, I think that's where it stems from. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak to the point about Black erasure, which I think this is extends even like outside of Muslims in the US. Um, because even I think to start at, you know, African American Muslims, I personally don't like the term African American um, because that's not what my ancestors called themselves African American. Um, they also didn't refer to themselves as black. Um, a term I, I call those like slave chattel brands. And I know not all um, black people in this country will agree with that. You know, people can choose to identify how they will. But I say that because our history begins, you know, as black people in this country, a lot of us are of Moorish ancestry and that predates, you know, to when we came to the US. And so I think that there's been a black erasure starting honestly from the time of the Prophet and his Sahaba, when we just like look at Muslim history, like, you know, Imam Ali, he was, you know, described as being a black skinned man. But, you know, people don't like to talk about that. You know, there are Sahaba who are black. And so, you know, I probably, I won't have this conversation on your show because I don't want to start up something controversial. But if you're looking at the Sahaba who are described as black, Imam Ali, described as dark-skinned Black, and he's the cousin of the Prophet, then what does that make the Prophet, you know? You know, a lot of people won't want to say that he was, you know, Black. And so I think you really have to start at Black erasure there when we're looking at the Ummah. And, you know, there's literature about this, the unknown Arabs, clear definitive proof of the dark complexion of the original Arabs and the Arab origin of, like, the so-called African-American. You can look at Dawood Walid's like censoring the black narrative, black Muslim nobles among the early pious Muslims. You know, in their book, they won't say that the Prophet was black, but they'll highlight different companions and early Muslims that were black. So I think an important thing to realize is this black erasure, you know, doesn't start with black Muslims in this country. This has been 
going throughout the history. And I think this is intentionally done by Europeans, you know, to distort the history. Because if you were to distort the history, then you don't know who are like the original people of this planet. You know, for everyone else, this is a shock. <laughs> and, you know, and I should say just to humble myself here, this is history that I'm coming to learn myself now. Because like how you said, you won't read this in the history books. You won't hear your masjids talking about it. And I don't mean just like non-Black masjids. You won't even hear some Black masjids talk about this. And so it's, you know, there's a very intentional agenda to separate Black people from our right, you know? Islam is our right, it's our culture, it's our faith, but, you know, it was taken from us. And so now you see a lot of people returning to this. And so that's just what I wanted to say on that part. I appreciate all those points. And um, the one question that it generated for me was when you said you don't like either terms, African-American Muslim or Black Muslim, what is your preferred, how do you prefer to be identified? Oh, as Moorish American. Moorish American. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that reminds me kind of, of, was it the Moorish temple that kind of preceded the nation of Islam? That was so why the, they chose that name. Cause I was wondering why they chose that name. The Moorish science temple of America. And it was founded by Prophet yes. Nabil Drew Ali. And so, yes, that is where you have this instance of us being reminded in this country that like, hey, you're not what your slave masters are calling you, right? You're not colored, you're not African-American. Like, it's a gift really to our people in this country of, you know, a lot of people, you know, as a black person, you'll suffer because you're like, my lineage was taken away from me. My ancestry was taken away from me. And when Noble Drali came, it was like a gift. Like, here is your history, right? Like, it doesn't start with slavery. Um, and so to me, that's really powerful um, to get to know that and to know that to being Black and Muslim, it's not this, um, it's not like trying to put puzzles together that don't fit. And in fact, they fit very well. It's just other people's perspective that they can't see that because they don't know the history. And then like, if you're thinking about Moorish American too, other terms right. are, you know, fine, are like original people, right? Um, and I, and I don't mean this just for like the so-called African-American, but like all over the planet, you know, if you look across the planet, there were darker peoples who inherited these areas. Um, so that's just what I mean too. Like it's not specific to the African-American. No, that's good to know. That's really, really good to know. Um, and I will, you know, alter my language. And, you know, what I like to do is usually ask people, how do you want to be identified? And I forgot to do that with you. So I oh, apologize. Yeah, no worries. Sorry, no you should have asked first. No worries. No, um, no it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so when we're talking about Muslim American identity, like, it's just important to know how each of us wants to be recognized because what's in a name, I feel like is everything, Yeah. you know? Right. Um, so in your mind, what does Muslim Amer what does a Muslim American look like, or what does Muslim American identity like? How do we define that for ourselves and for our kids? That's a really big question, actually. <laughs> that's um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a, a big really one. <laughs> big question, and I'm I'm not even sure if I can like fully answer that um, because I think everybody's going to have a different answer for that, and. I'm not sure if like a collective answer fits, right? Especially when you're thinking about the places where people come from, 
right? So like my parents were born in this country. Um, my great grandparents were you know, enslaved in this country. And so I have a different perspective on what it means to like be Muslim American from someone who, you know, like immigrated to this country and you, you bring your own culture. And I think, right, like in America, we all kind of like live differently, right? Like, you know, like it's like a other side of the tracks type of thing. Like for you, 9-11 was something that significant that happened. But for a lot of other people, you know, being Muslim in this country, it was a challenge before 9-11. Like, there were CIA operatives, like, infiltrating Nation of Islam, like, straight up killing people, spreading fitna. And so, like, the CIA, the U.S. government has, like, always been a part of our lives. Um, Black Panther movements, like, so it's hard to say, like, for me, to define Muslim American as just like a hodgepodge of people <laughs> that are bringing. Yeah. Well, what could it mean to you, I guess? What yeah. it mean to me? Um, yeah. Hmm. I guess from our. I mean, overall, it is a trick question. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I will say, I, okay, so I guess for me, answering this now, I guess tying back to talking about like ancestry, what we call ourselves, I do feel a deep sense of ownership of this land that, you know, my ancestors discovered this land. We tilled this land, you know, we, this land was stolen from us. And I feel that a deep connection to this land called America. And so my existence in here is that I'm like, yeah, like this is my land. This is where I'm supposed to be and placing claim on it. Um, but I don't know if that like gives you a definition, but I don't know. I feel like my identity as a Muslim and my presence here in this country, there's a significance that maybe I haven't yet discovered, right? Like there's a reason while we're in this land and that I do, if not me, that I hope that my son, my children will like re-inherit this land and create a just system in this land. That's something that I definitely pray for that my children, our children will re-inherit this land and place ownership and create a just system. I mean, to that dua, that's, mm -hmm. you know, the prayer that we all have um, and again, it was a trick question. I think what you explained was what it means to you. And I think that's absolutely important because, you know, here's the thing that the, that the non-Muslim folks, they want to have in a, a, a picture in their mind of what a Muslim looks like. Mm -hmm. And they would never put you and me in a room together mm -hmm. or, you know, on a board together. And, you know, they would never put Zeba, my co-host and me in a room together, mm -hmm. you know, um, because they have in their minds a certain look and a certain nationality or ethnicity going on. And we don't fit those bills. I mean, maybe we do because we both wear a headscarf. And so we're both equally suspect in that way. But um, other than that, without our headscarves, they would never lump us together. Yeah. And I, I want us 
to be able to not only internalize, but also to expose and very often educate, and you're in the education business, so you get this, to educate people that Islam is not a monolith, just like any other major religion um, that spans cultures and languages and nations. We are a community of nations, you know, and so... I mean, that's what our religion teaches us too. Mm-hmm. So I would like to dispel that myth that Islam is a monolith. And so we come mm-hmm. from everywhere. But I love what you said about we belong here, my children belong here, and that we need to reclaim it. Because, and again, what you're speaking about is history that people don't know. They mm-hmm. don't know about the African kings that came and explored and, you know, discovered these areas and never came back. But for some reason, the art and architecture looks almost exactly alike in the Americas than it mm-hmm. does in the, uh, in the West African coast. Mm-hmm. So it's just the music mm-hmm. and all of that. And it's, there's follow the history, learn the history. And I feel so bad that I didn't learn African-American and women's studies because I think it would have helped me so much as a mom now when I'm trying to educate my kids on what Mm -hmm. is authentic American history, which Mm -hmm. again, like you said, is our children's history. Mm -hmm. So as a mom, do you feel like now that you're a mom, do you feel like any of the identifiers that you used previously have changed or have grown? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. Um, I, I I definitely, I think that it's reinforced like a journey that I already started with my husband before we had our son and just taking a journey. So we, um, we were able, alhamdulillah, to be blessed to have a sheikh um, who has been able to teach us for the past few years. And it's been a very comprehensive teaching um, in terms of deen, dunya, and akhirah. And then also, you know, learning more about the world around us um, and, you know, who we really are before we were enslaved as a people, just like learning more about our actual history. And so that's required, you know, like reading texts that aren't on like the unofficial, like African-American history, um, like book list which has been like very eye-opening. So I think since having a son, it's only like deepened my, um, deepened my desire to know more, to learn more. And, you know, as a mom and, you know, as a Muslim, you know, we will be asked about like our children. And so that is one of the ways that I think about it is that I have like a deep responsibility to him to like know this on information to act on this information and to be able to accurately pass it on to him. And so like a lot of the times I'm like very overwhelmed by this responsibility. Um, But like knowing it's important for who he is, especially as, you know, being a male in this country and needing to have that like confidence, right? Um, Especially what we see happening right right now and what we've always seen happening, this particular target on the black male child, right? And it just resembles like Fir'aun, right? Well, you know, what we learn about the people of Musa, السلام, right? Like there was a specific Pharaoh was specifically targeting the black male children and like letting the women, you know, like live. And so I think we see that very much now and knowing that I will need to be able to support him in this way where he does feel confident, where he does feel nurtured, that he does feel very confident in his 
masculinity and then also in his identity as a Muslim, as you know, a black person in this country, because this is how people will see him. And so, yeah, I think it's definitely increased my desire to want to master um, the information that's necessary. I don't know that I can ever master it, but I feel like you, the pressure to provide it yeah. for my uh, non-Black children, because I know that there's no other place that they're going to get it unless it comes from me right now um, or from trusted resource resources that I trust. Um, and so we're going to include those um links in our show notes. It's mostly the Islamic Network group that has a history of Muslims in America, which taught me about African-American history as I had never learned it before at any point in my life. And um, the Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative that has ongoing webinars and education. And I we've been promoting here at Mommy One Muslim like people to um, join that uh, group to get educated and to learn what our parents couldn't teach us, what our teachers can teach us, and then um, going forward, how to empower ourselves and our children to make change. Because for the first time ever in my life, I've heard that comparison to fit own. And that is literally what is happening. And I'm so thankful to you for pointing that out, that our sons are being targeted. And I hope by saying our, that's not offensive to you, but I think every child is my child and I have ownership and responsibility toward every child, regardless of his color. I am, I want to be a mom to everybody or mother them in some way, even if it means the least that I can do is bring you on and share that incredible pearl that what's happening now is exactly what fit on Pharaoh, the only person guaranteed to go to Jahannam is, uh, to go to hell, um, that that is what the institutions are right now because they are, you know, I have to continue praying for Tamar Rice every single night. Cause I'm like, my son is that age, you know, mm -hmm. my oldest right now. So I, I can't even imagine, you know, and I fear guns for entirely different reasons. But once Tamar got shot, it was like, don't you ever go out even in the front yard with your Nerf gun, even though it looks nothing like a real one. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I really thank you for that Pharaoh analogy. I think that's really important for us to realize that, yes, that's who he is. That's what's going on in the White House and trickling down below. And if we don't, as Muslims, protest against that and work really with our sleeves rolled up to change that we're just uh, empowering for own and if you're not against them you're with them and you're going to mm -hmm. drown in the sea with them so mm -hmm. i i don't want to do that i love Thank that you summary so you just gave sharing yeah. that yeah i just want to say i love that summary <laughs> you just gave and then also like i'm not offended by you saying are at all like right because we are muslims mm -hmm. and you are my sister you know <laughs> and so that is that I is what we that. should be binded by, right? Like we should, our relationship should be in Allah. Mm -hmm. And so if we're truly brothers and sisters over one another, exactly. that's exactly how you should feel. And I should feel the same towards you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll introduce you to my kids and then you'll be running for the hills. But, you know, <laughs> you're a new mom, so I don't want to scare you yet <laughs> about what's coming. So scared. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts for us today? <laughs> no, I mean, I was like nervous about this conversation because like it's not something that I've like talked exclusively about or like even from a perspective as a mother now. And so I want to thank you for like bringing this conversation to me. And even in this, I've like learned things from what you've said and just like has given me more food for thought. And so I'm really happy that 
you organize this conversation and the series that y'all have been doing, I think this is really so beneficial um, to the Ummah and like beyond the Ummah. And so I just really want to say thank you for the work that you're doing to like bring these issues to light. And we can't wait until your new season starts and we'll be tuning in to Identity Politics Podcast as well. We've included the link in our show notes. So we hope people tune in because, you know, you're in education, you know that it never stops. And as Muslims, it's incumbent upon us to just keep learning and learning from each other, establishing these relationships, even if they're audio relationships, even if they're virtual relationships, they matter, they're important, and we have to continue to do that work. It's the very least we can do. Yes, definitely. I'm looking forward to sharing this out to our network. Awesome. Jazakallah so much for joining us today and for your time. Uh, we so appreciate it. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming while Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show, as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice, because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.